Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. Like the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. My name's Rashid. My day-to-day job is working in higher education, doing student support and welfare. But on the side, I do writing about literature, writing about film, writing about philosophy. So I completed a PhD a couple of years ago in and around English Lit Gothic studies, focusing on themes that touched upon self-destruction in a kind of literary and speculative sense transgression and looking at ways to not escape but imagine alternative possibilities outside of the kind of capitalist dynamic that we live in. Yeah, completed my PhD a few years ago. Had a few years in the wilderness of real life and this book is my first steps back into the world of writing and thinking about leftists responses and questions around escapes and alternatives to capitalism. The book itself is, I said, a short, hopefully quite entertaining breed, which just plays with ideas around pessimism, utopia, and starts to call into question, or at least call for a great sense of imagination as we're trying to think of alternatives to a world where it's very difficult to essentially see them. Yeah, there's a really good quote. I think this was your quote opposed to you quoting another author. We need to abandon any optimistic delusion that utopia can be found in our world. Now, as far as I understand it, I don't think you're dunking on utopia as such, but more optimism about utopia Yeah. Yeah. and the role of optimism that plays in our daily life, right? Well, exactly. The book itself starts off with a bit of complete takedown of optimism, just a rethinking of how optimism is typically used, or at least how I find it's typically used day to day. I'm against the, the idea that having an optimistic starting point is going to get us very far in a kind of radical sense. Because to be optimistic is to say that despite how things are, despite what's going on, things will be better. I argue that, or at least I question the extent to which that means that we don't have to try very hard. If we, if the sense is that things will improve or things will be better, does that have a negative impact on our personal or collective responsibility to see that changes, to see those changes happen? And then I start to talk about as well how optimism and it is very much used within the discourses of capitalism itself now. Capitalism, it's selling itself as an optimistic system whereby if you follow the rules of capitalism, if you're a good worker, you will have all of the nice things. The world will go your way. 
So it's take, taking a bit of a shot at those kind of arguments and to some extent delusions and saying that actually what we need to do is decouple this idea that utopia is an optimistic discourse. Actually, utopia isn't optimistic at all. Utopia is always not this. It's not what we can grasp by. It's not what we can see. It's not what is over the horizon. Because once we actualize it or we put a name to it, then it becomes a negotiator's thing rather than this amazing field that we can never actually never actually grasp. One of the things that I appreciated about the book is just in terms of the general understanding of optimism and pessimism colloquially and among the general kind of consensus has always been that optimism is good and pessimism is bad. I always felt that was reductive because one of the major differences between optimism and pessimism is that they are both an attempt to achieve a goal, right? That pessimism is not about not achieving a goal. Pessimism is much more of we need to address these obstacles, right? Yeah. That it's much more of a like a terrain view, right? Rather than just this, I have this one goal and it's just the goal is nice, but we still have this entire geography to contend with. So if you're in if you're in the the field of trying to make things or do things, then by definition you have to be able to see quite clearly what's ahead of you, right? So it, if you're a pessimist, then you are seeing the obstacles in reality, right? Opposed to just hoping that there will be none. But there's this sense of, hey, we have these obstacles need to be dealt with in order to reach this goal. The pessimist versus the optimist is just, let's not think about these obstacles. Let's just focus on the goal and just barrel through. It really goes with like the kind of excess positive thinking that has been like this very strong trend, whether in mental health or whether in talking about our conditions in general. Yeah, because you make the point in the book, to paraphrase, optimism is a form of complacency, essentially, that the only people that really benefit from optimism are those already in comfortable positions or in positions of power. So yeah. in, in right. that way, pessimism is anti-establishment. Yeah. Let's say that pessimism is a starting point or a position. Now, there are a great many different kind of roads you can take from that position. But ultimately, from that position, you can see the landscape ahead of you. You can see the world in all of its horror. And, you know, when you can see that clearly, when you're not turning your back to it or you're not overcome by a, an optimistic sense that would say, oh, that doesn't matter because if I do this, then everything will be fine. Then I think you can actually start to pragmatically start to navigate that in a way. If optimism ultimately wants us to continue plodding along as we are because everything will be right in the end, whereas the pessimist would say, Actually, things are not right. They probably aren't going to be right. But then it's up to the pessimist, the person in that kind of critical position to then choose a path to navigate that. Now, the book aims to encourage a bit of kind of imaginative thinking, speculative thinking as to 
how we could try to overcome some of those those barriers. But pessimism is a contentious viewpoint, namely because it does have a lot of, rightly or wrongly, a lot of connotations with fatalism, with just a general bad attitude. Toxic positivity is just nauseating. But I also have this thing just on a sort of basic level. There's definitely a few people I've known in my life who I would consider, and maybe this is blurring of the terms, but I can think of a few people that I think of as deeply cynical or pessimistic or defeatist, and they can really suck the energy out of a room. And it's from reading this book, I don't think you're like saying, hey, we need to be like those guys. I think you're trying to say, have a clear picture of what's ahead of you. And it's actionable, right? Like it's about doing something. It's not just about everything's shit and it always will be. I think what you're doing to a certain degree is confusing affect because optimism and pessimism isn't necessarily an affect. It's an approach. You can be pessimistic and be a very bubbly person. I'm a proud pessimist myself. One of the jokes that my friends have about me is I'm the cutest bad news bear because I'm so bubbly about it. Yes, like I said, pessimism isn't necessarily the definition of who you are or how you act or anything like that. It is more of a starting point. At least that's how I, the position which you take from which you can then move. Now, how you choose to move is obviously an individual collective thing, but yeah, pessimism or the pessimist then has to do something. I think we can say that the pessimist expects nothing. They don't necessarily expect the world to change in a better way. The glasses obviously have empty as the, as the adage goes. The pessimist expecting nothing implies a kind of a lack of belief almost in the future. But then this was like one of the main the questions I had when writing this was how do I then take that and marry it with a a leftist approach whereby we do actually want to see some positive change in the world. So yeah, the contention is that pessimism is fundamentally then a critical position. And from that position, the hope is that it, you can see the world in all of its, in all of its, however it is. So the difference between hope and optimism is, if optimism is a sort of form of complacency with the status quo, hope is towards something that maybe you will not necessarily see in your lifetime, but you believe is for the sort of betterment of you yes. and your community. It's as if it's motivation as opposed to complacency. I had this conversation with a friend of mine who, I, I guess he's a capitalist, and he was like, I was talking to him about some of these ideas, and he's oh yeah, moments of despair. And again, these are interchangeable terms, maybe or un, unfairly used in it. But moments of despair or confusion or pessimism are great business opportunities. Obviously, I roll my eyes, but there's a part of it where I'm like, yeah, I guess he's right. I guess for some of us, the feeling is like we're already at this low point as far as how society, I don't know, treats those without means. And so we already feel like we're at this low point. And perhaps you can make the point that consumer capitalism is trying to patch over all of these things that actually don't work in terms of like basic human needs. But I guess that part of the question is, what if people prefer 
this perverse naivety, which is a term I think you used in your book, yeah. of optimism. There's that term pronoia, the idea that the world is conspiring to help you. We all know people who are into that sort of stuff. It's all over Instagram and it's all spiraling off things like the book, The Secret. So, yeah, how do you confront that kind of thing? I wonder how to approach that problem, if the problem is real, that people prefer perverse naivety. It's a really interesting question, and it's really something which I do grapple with a little, and I'm not going to say that I have an answer necessarily to it, but just to talk it through, maybe. I think, yeah, listen, when faced with essentially two choices, the devil or a leap into a void where we don't know what's going to come and culture your life, the lives of everyone that you see around you has maybe taught you to be a bit skeptical of any kind of happy ending or anything new and amazing that's going to come of that. In that situation, yes, it's very easy to, I say, better the devil, stick with our optimism, let's stick with just trying to carve out, flesh out some kind of life within a system that we know, despite all of its ills. Now, that is, unfortunately, I think anyway, something which we face as a culture anyway. And it comes down to the same. We can't actually imagine alternatives to what we've got in any kind of practicable way. And when we do, they often appear as maybe diluted down revolutionary ideas or maybe tokenistic marginal kind of improvements or gains, which ultimately solidifies the power control hegemony of the capitalist system that we're in. Now, it's difficult to individually, even collectively, to overcome that. And that is, don't have an answer necessarily, other than to provoke and encourage a greater sense of questioning of the world that's around you, a greater sense of imagining ideas, having the conversations, having the creative outlets and ideas to think of things that are maybe different. And then, when it do, when the time does maybe come to to make a choice between the devil something that does look a little bit different, there might be a bit more confidence. So, yeah, um, I thought perhaps the glue to some of this stuff as well was you talked about the Schopenhauer, if that's how you say right. his name, and, and the point you were making is that yeah, sure, this guy was a grumpy bastard, but that he fundamentally had something very similar to Buddhism, which is like life is suffering. That's actually the thing that kind of unites all of us to some degree. And so I guess in these sort of Disney escapes to fantasies of happy endings, perhaps we're drawn to those happy endings precisely because they don't always turn up in, in real life, that, yeah, you had this thing about that pessimism ultimately speaks truthfully about suffering and that it's a sort of moral angle. And that to be a pessimist is to some degree to be ethically concerned with yeah. the sort of quality of lives of others and stuff like that. But I also wondered, because you quote Slavoj Žižek, it's only when we despair and don't know anymore what to do that change can be enacted. We have to go through this zero point of hopelessness. And that reminded me of almost like a cliche in equal in your world right, of the, this idea of having to hit rock bottom before you can get back up. Yeah, the idea that existence equals suffering, that human beings, we are just natural creatures, no different or any, no more special than anything else. And as a result of that, we shouldn't necessarily 
put ourselves above others. We're all the same suffering creatures and therefore the kind of moral impetus of our lives within this world that is set up against us should be to see the reduction of suffering where we can. And it's something which a lot of kind of pessimistically inclined writers since have picked up on them. One of them in particular, Thomas Ligotti, who I think about in, in the book, in an interview that he did, he wrote that as a socialist, he wants everyone, you know, the socialist position should be that everyone should be as comfortable as they can possibly be whilst in this suffering life. Unfortunately, a major part of civilization consists of capitalists who are ultimately savages. And as long as we have to live in this world, what could be more sensible than to want for yourself and others to suffer as little as possible? Unfortunately, this will never really happen because too many people are savage capitalists, brutal and inhuman. As a pessimist, the primary concern is eliminating suffering or at least diminishing it significantly. So I can see many critics would say it's maybe a stretch to go from a position of absolute dejection and despair to saying that this is actually, when you boil it down, a somewhat compassionate or empathetic position. But it is one which I think does is worth pursuing and teasing out. If we can see in ourselves and in others that we all have a lot of challenges and difficulties to face, then the sensible thing is that we work together to try and overcome them. And that is the value that I'm trying to pull out of pessimism from Schopenhauer through more contemporary critics as well. But I think there's something to this idea of the reduction of suffering. Obviously, equal is the term harm reduction, right? But do you think in your experience that you have to reach a sort of zero point of hopelessness before you find change to be enacted? Because I know that you've said in the past that there's a sort of cultural meme that sometimes does more harm than good, right? Especially when it comes to what is quote unquote rock bottom really, right? Is what it comes down to. Because for a lot of people, it's death. Yeah. yeah. If you're dead, there's nothing to come back from. Although, but that was maybe, I'm a macabre or whatever, but there's definitely that bit in the book that made me chuckle. was the idea that suicide was even still encapsulated by sort of optimism because it was seen as like a way out, like an escape. And to some degree, it's got to be true, right? It is a way, it stops things. There is nothing after that. I think in a sense of, I think that is actually a really kind of important point in a certain way, because optimism is about control. Right. And ultimately, when you feel so helpless and everything is absolutely going against you, it is like a last ditch effort at, I am going to decide my fate. Again, like people commit suicide for a various number of reasons, diverse. That can be one of some of the factors of, to because to a certain degree, right? One aspect of pessimism is that like, it, it is an admittance of not everything being in your control. And that's, that's part of the horror, right? Not only seeing sort of various things that, they're upsetting or cause more outrage, but just that sort of awareness that you aren't 
actually in control of everything. And one of the things about like optimism is that it can also be like a very comfortable resting spot for hubris. They breed together. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where I really feel like the rock bottom thing is, I think, an application of the hubris of optimism. Because optimism really is often about not questioning a lot of the values and the presumptions and assumptions in our society. Right. Right. And this is, I thought, were another great point in the book that in regards to talking about suicide or just self-destructive behaviors, the quote is self-destruction defies the naturalization of neoliberalism and postmodern values that regulate our behaviors, shape our world and demand our compliance. It reminds me quite a lot of the Melancholy of Class book we did ages ago, where she was talking about eating disorders and how that's often linked to, I don't like this world, I refuse to put it into me, as it were, through food. I'm holding out for something else. It's that. I thought that was a great point that, again, that self-destruction is an act of autonomy against an environment that you fundamentally disagree with to some degree, right? Yeah. Or an environment that, you know, is ultimately harming you. We are essentially made of the capitalist environment that we live in. The self then is an extension of conduit of capitalism to self-destruct is then within speculative sense an attack on or a destruction of that system. So to remove yourself in a self-destructive way from that system is giving yourself back some kind of autonomy, some kind of control, some kind of agency which the self as conduit of capitalism doesn't have. And that's it's, it's something which in this book, I do try to tread a very careful line in talking about this as a kind of almost thought experiment, a speculative, imaginative approach rather than something to be actualized. When you do put it into a real world context, then it does, don't want it to sound like I'm trivializing actual self-harm, self-destruction, suicide. Because obviously that is not the case. But it is... I'm, I write about self-destruction quite a bit here. I do try to do it in a way that treads a very careful line between this being something that we can imagine in a kind of existential sense rather than a, an actual real-world sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. and also there's that twist, I guess. Maybe I hadn't picked that up in the book, but what you just said, this idea of that if you, essentially if you're radiated by a capitalist environment 24-7, that then you embody those same destructive tendencies of the system, right? So it has this dual thing, like on one hand, it's an act of autonomy, the, the self-destruction thing. But on the other hand, you're just enacting what the system does to the planet. So that's fascinating. One of the things I find fascinating as well is that if optimism is a sort of delusion and maybe a necessary delusion sometimes, like we said, the happy endings personified by lots of Disney films or our fiction or whatever, then you suddenly realize, okay, the world we live in, if it's controlled mostly through capital, then essentially we're living in the optimistic delusion of capitalists, right? And so that's the reality that they require to live in. That's the system they want. Because I was thinking about this, this term blue sky thinking or this encouragement to 
follow your dreams, as it were. But your dreams often have to align with, it must make lots of money. And uh, I'm just wondering, because as a sort of refrain you hear a lot whenever you talk about utopian ideals or just politics or idealistic things that aren't current, present in our current reality, people often tell you to, no, that's not how the real world works. But the real world is, to some degree, a constructed delusion by capitalists that require, like you said, this kind of 24-7 on-repeat optimism so that all the workers feel good about waking up and doing their job. So actually, I didn't think I even have a question there. I just I enjoyed yeah, thinking I about that. Yeah, I mean, it's actually something which, uh, I'll touch upon it in the book, actually. Grim Berlant's book, Cruel Optimism, talks about quite a lot. So it's a sense that optimism is itself a kind of relational binds that's cruel in that it keeps us tied to a logic and system that is actually, strip it back, counterintuitive and is actually a barrier to us from flourishing. So it's a sense that optimism maintains our kind of complicity within this relationship we have to the whether it be the capitalist world or kind of the myths or fantasies within that like the good life fantasy, the, the idea that if you go to the right university, you get the right degree, you get the right job, you get the money, which then allows you to do all of the, have all of the nice things and you will live a nice, happy, lovely life. You know, that is, for Lauren Berland, a cruelly optimistic myth. It keeps us tied into the system, but actually... When things don't go to plan, which invariably they never do, rather than spurning on those myths or critiquing those myths, what we're actually doing is almost internalizing that or taking the blame on ourselves. So it's, I didn't, I don't have enough money in my bank account because I don't work hard enough or I need to set about a big life change to the detriment of time or the pursuits, which actually do make me happy. So yeah, it's that sense that the optimism is very much bound up in optimism in a sense of life will be good if you do all of the things that you should. It keeps us bound in that relationship and further invested in it when actually if we were able to take a more pragmatic, critical point, step back and go, actually, the things that I enjoy doing have no relation to having to work hard within a nine-to-five that I don't like. Yeah, and on that sort of line of thinking, I guess, that there's a quote, that we end up being the perpetual witness to one's failed hopes. That really made me chuckle in a in kind of a dark manner. But it's that, it's that thing of, I guess, being a pawn in a rigged game. But as a side, you mentioned in, in terms of utopia and discussing this idea, and you said early on, utopia is this, not this, impulse maybe, or reflex against current situations. There's this concept of utopia that you have as a sort of nothingness or a refusal, the the utopia of us without the world. What does all that kind of stuff mean? In the book, I go as far as to say that utopia is an impossibility. As soon as utopia is actualized, it's not utopia. It's a kind of mediation or negotiation of some kind of values or ideals actualized. Utopia, capital U, as a tangible thing, um, I think Frederick Jameson says is actually the kind of closing off of ideas and social possibility, whereas utopianism or utopia that isn't actualized or graspable is 
ultimately possibility. It's what could be. It's the best world that we can't necessarily have. And so far, it's an escape. As soon as we say that this is utopia, we lose the opportunity to escape, I think is the way that, that Frederick Jameson runs with that idea. I think he goes so far as to say that the best utopians are those that fail because it doesn't cause off that impulse to rebel or that kind of escapist impulse. I think at least what I get at in, in this book is that utopia as a named tangible grab at it thing is in danger if it isn't already of becoming another political slogan. The, the book touches on an essay that China Mayville wrote which was all about reclaiming the idea of utopia from the capitalists who have turned utopia into big business, particularly around the fight against climate change and global warming. So instead of utopia being an actual kind of bettered world, utopia becomes equal utopias that are popping up in order to fight the negative effects of climate change, but in actuality, it's big things is seeking opportunities to plant some trees and look like they're doing their bit. Utopia, on the back of that, I then start to talk about utopia as in, in different forms. There's utopia of the world that we exist in made better. There's the utopia of the world almost completely remade. And then, as we as you alluded to, the utopia of us without the world. And that is a I want to say it's a playful taking the point that if we exist in a kind of capitalist world that we can't escape, then what better utopia than us existing without this capitalist world? So it's us utterly removed from capitalism, which to a certain extent, or at least the way that the world is geared up, that becomes in itself an impossibility. The need or the call for more imagination and more more attempts to yeah try to think of these utopian spaces that aren't within this kind of capitalist world. I guess on a sort of day-to-day level, do you see this sort of this kind of refusal or radical disbelief or negation? Do you see that just playing out in personal interactions, maybe in water cooler conversations where you mm. challenge concepts? I know that was it some famous Greek dude, Socrates or his Bill and Ted say Socrates, didn't he? Or was it him or was it one of the other guys? who would stand around the village square challenging everyone. Is that the sort of thing that you're maybe thinking of on a day-to-day level is just to pop the bubble? Because you make this point that we've all grown up in and generations have grown up in a certain kind of ideology and it pervades everything and how we think for ourselves, how we think about our place in the world and our society. And it's a sort of framework that we're taught in some ways. So besides, I guess, like the big things like organizing in whatever fashion yeah do you see it playing out and just challenging people on a one-to-one basis or is that just my own kind of perverse enjoyment i think we can hope for change we're seeing you know in the uk mass strikes across loads of different industries at the moment whether that bears fruit i don't know but at least being hopeful about it, even showing that the way that the system is currently set up, the way that our economy is set up, it cannot hold. Far too many people are suffering, far too many people are being vocal about the challenges and the struggles that they're facing now. I do see calls for hope in that. 
I work in universities as well, so I work with young people, students on a day-to-day. Um, it's a scary place to be because you see both sides. You see all of the pressures and all of the stress and all of the psychological impacts that even you know, between the ages of typically 18 to 23, that they're facing as they're trying to claw their first steps out into the world of work. Well, equally within that, you're seeing, uh, particularly in, in certain subject areas and tools, more of their kind of desire to do a degree to get their qualifications, but then to do things that satisfy themselves or working on, on their own kind of interests and habits rather than necessarily going straight into the world of work or going straight into that machine. It's even in a kind of work capacity as well. I think what we're seeing now is even personally and people within my own team, there's less sense of work is everything and less kind of desire to completely give ourselves to the workspace. And what's it called? It's quiet quitting is yeah. a big, it's is been a bit of a topic of debate. Anecdotally, you do see that a lot more nowadays. Is it something which, in the grand scheme of things, is going to bring about the downfall of the capitalist system? No. But in the, on, on a micro scale, does it give people individually a bit more of an opportunity to look after their own well-being, to do the things that they enjoy at the expense of the economy or the system? Yes. And you know what? Maybe there is the radical in me applauds that. I'm not quite sure what the chart looks like in Britain, but... And I've seen the one in the States, that famous graph where it shows productivity and wages and the productivity is just going up and wages basically hit the 1970s and then they just flatline. So the whole quiet quitting thing is obviously COVID makes it made a, a dent as well in, I guess, people's why they do anything moment of reflection, et cetera. But the quiet quitting thing just makes sense just on the basis of, yeah, no one's, everyone knows that they're getting dicked, right? Yeah, there's more of a a general awareness as well that salary, wage, yes, obviously we need it, but it doesn't necessarily bear any real relation to the output, the effort, the stress that you're under. And then there is a definite rebellion against that. It's not in actual terms of people leaving work or escaping the system, but at least in the conversations and the attitudes that people have towards it. I think it's something that Franco Berardi talks about, the idea that this wage myth is something that we need to start to think about, this idea that we need to work to collect a salary to live when actually there is more than enough wealth and resource around for everyone to have a good standard of life if it were just shared out. Accordingly, agree. Those conversations, I think, are like I said, I work within universities, and it's always been the case that those kinds of conversations happen on campus. But I think it is permeating a lot more into kind of general society as well, at least where I am in the UK. Yeah, equally. Did you have any sort of final thoughts? Because we're in the final few minutes. Oh, I really did enjoy the book for disabusing some of the binary aspects of optimism and pessimism and fleshing it out in 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 this case, like the political sense of what this means. Yeah, there's a good quote to close out. The worst is an opponent we cannot overlook. 
Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Red Yen Cola, Joseph Carreri, E, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Inter- personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.